Welcome to In Context from Vine Sanctuary. Our guest today is Eloisa Trinidad, who works with Chili's on Wheels, the Vegan Activist Alliance, and numerous other projects. The sanctuary resident I'm going to have in mind today is a goat called Sugar who, like our guest today, is super friendly, extremely cooperative, a doer who is the person you want to turn to if you want to get things done, and who is absolutely devoted to the ethos of mutual aid. Sugar came to the sanctuary after a whole group of goats were seized from a small farm due to cruelty and neglect. And the reason that she came to the sanctuary is because she's such a good friend. Sugar's friend, Haley, was in such bad shape after the seizure that she had to go to the animal hospital for a number of weeks. But she had a very young child called Cookie. So Sugar took care of Cookie while Haley was in the hospital. And then because, of course, the trio couldn't be separated, they all three came here to Vine. Sugar has become one of the bright lights of the goat gang and she always seems to be showing off the ethos of mutual aid here at Vine Sanctuary. It's not at all uncommon to see her walking around with a rooster on her back because she's decided that she's going to give him a lift wherever he wants to go. So Sugar is who I'm going to have in mind as I'm interviewing or rather having a conversation with Eloisa Trinidad. Eloisa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Patrice. Sugar sounds amazing. I really want to meet them and, and learn from them. They sound like they're doing amazing work at the sanctuary, and there's so much that we can learn from our beyond human relatives. So thank you for all the work that all of you are doing at Vine. What you've just said leads right to what I was going to start by asking you. Because one of the things I love about you, which is not true of as many vegan and animal advocates as we would wish, is that you do understand that we need to decenter the human and learn from other animals, not just appoint ourselves their rescuers and heroes. There's a real dedication to what I've heard you call collective liberation in all of the things you do. And so the first question I have is, well, where did this ethos come from? Where did this this way of including everybody in collective liberation come from for you? Yeah, I mean, I really have to go back to being raised by elders who, who taught me exist in this world in collaboration and in connection with everyone here. This is how I came to be. I am here because they've been here, because others are here. And so the experience of being a child and being raised in a household where everybody was welcomed, you know, a lot of the folks who were rejected by other folks in our community really made an impact on me. And it makes me so emotional to even think about, but my great-grandmother 
is a legend in her own right, um, where I'm from, and um, really taught me that if we have any sort of privilege, that that privilege should be used to uplift others and to protect others who may need that protection. And so collective liberation has always been at the forefront. And, you know, this is what led to me being vegan. I was taught so many amazing Afro-Indigenous ways of existing in this world. And seeing fish being hurt even by the people who taught me that really told me to take it a step further and to include our beyond human relatives, regardless of what species they may be. And so mutual aid was part of the way I was raised. You know, we grew food, even though we didn't have a lot, we shared what we had. And so food has always been at the center of my world and of my life and understanding the power of food and what it means to have land, to be able to grow and to exist in a place where you can be self-sustainable was really, really important. So that's how I came into collective liberation. It really was my upbringing. And I'm really grateful for the elders who raised me and, and taught me those ways. I'm so glad that you told me about this. Uh, my own grandmother was was a foundational to me so much so that we named the very first chicken we rescued after her. Her name was Moselle. This was back in the Dominican Republic, yes? Yes, this is back in the Dominican Republic. And, you know, I remember so many of the people that were welcomed in our home, people who didn't have a place to live, people who others thought may have, may have AIDS, people who were thought of as being gay. And so anybody who was really rejected had a safe space in the home of my great-grandparents. And so that's really the idea that I had of the world. When I came to the U.S., I was really shocked to see the lack of collaboration between folks. And I, you know, even in my own existence in Dominican Republic, I always think looking back that I was raised in this bubble of sort of collective liberation and peace. And I didn't realize, I think, that the world wasn't like that, even though I saw suffering. I mean, I was very well aware of the suffering going on with others. I always felt like, well, you know, we'll all just get together and, and fix it, right? <laughs> or we don't have to wait for the next lifetime. We can all just fix it if we work together. Um, but obviously, you know, there are challenges and collaboration for many is a challenge. And one thing that I'm really grateful for is that, you know, being vegan to me really comes from that tradition and that the folks who I first connected with were also part of the animal rights movement who was seen sort of outside the mainstream movement. And so my entire work has been shaped by queer, Black, and Indigenous people on this movement. And I'm really proud of that. And and I say it, you know, all the time because it's important to how I have developed in the animal liberation movement and in the collective liberation movement. Wow, this is so moving to hear, especially for me as someone who was an AIDS activist, just knowing that, you know, while I was being an AIDS activist, you were growing up in a household where, where people were welcoming people with AIDS at the time when, when so many were, 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 were shunned. I, I want to ask you more about many of the things you said, but before I do that, I have to ask you your grandmother's name. Maria, that's her name. 
that's her and the most amazing person and my great grandfather, her husband, Roman, you know, with the two of them and they were illiterate. They didn't know how to read or write. So as a kid, I remember doing homework and I just thought everybody did their homework alone as a child, but they would really support me, even though they couldn't understand what I was writing. And they really prepared me for the world and, and what was to come. And I look back at some of the things that they would say to me and I'm like, wow, you know, these things are still true today, whether it was about, you know, people going to the sun to have the skin color that you have as a child, you're like, oh, this is, that's amazing. I have a beautiful skin color. And so as an adult, I really do realize that that was to prepare me for what was to come. Mm-hmm. One of the things you said, either your grandmother or great-grandmother taught you was the obligation to use any privilege that you have, that we have, to to make things better for others. And I know that for many people, even though that sounds self-evident, for many people, that's a real struggle. It's a real struggle especially when you are on the on the on the receiving end of disadvantage to even recognize any privilege that you might have and even people who have massive amounts of privilege um i'm thinking of many white vegans who have a lot of privilege but because they're siding with animals who don't seem to miss their own privilege so it it, it seems to be like a sticking point for people everywhere on on many different positions to even be able to see what privilege they have in order to use it. Have you found that? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it's uncommon. I think that, you know, the animal liberation movement is an interesting one, right? As opposed to other movements where victims are able to march for themselves and speak for themselves. So when you have our beyond human relatives who are silenced every day and who are tortured, even though we do know that they try to liberate themselves as well and they, you know, break free many times, I think, you know, it creates a situation where it's very easy to to speak for them completely. And, and so they are for continuing to silence them and to really decenter them and continue to center that privilege. And for folks who have never had to fight for liberation, I can totally understand that that's a concept that they may not be able to comprehend, right? Because they're only understanding it from the life of another. And an animal, an animal doesn't speak a human language. So that animal can't really give you feedback in human language. And so I think because there is that disconnect of we're not receiving feedback continuously, as opposed to when indigenous folks fight, when black folks fight fights for liberation, you know, when trans folks fight for liberation, we're able to tell other folks who claim to be allies how they're being harmful. And so because that feedback loop is not necessarily there or people are choosing to, to not hear it, in many ways, then obviously it creates an even bigger challenge for the folks who are privileged in this movement to be able to comprehend what it is going to take. Liberation is not black and white. It's not a straight line. It's not a straight road. And it's political. Everything is political. Uh, You know, the lives of others are being decided by people who are in policy and who run the economies around the world. 
And so while it may be easy for us to think of things in boxes and in black and white, that's not the way we're going to achieve liberation. It's never been done before. People are still fighting for their own liberation. And to think that we're going to see a world where everyone's free just because, you know, some folks with privilege have decided in their mind that they have the formula to get to liberation, you know, I find that to be a symptom of colonialism. Of I know better. I'm in charge. I have the power. Therefore, I know how we're going to get there. And so it's a symptom of unchecked power, in my opinion. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and one of the things that's a little bit different here at, at sanctuaries is that we do get feedback from the non-human members of our community. And that makes it even more frustrating for us when we see others who claim to be advocates for animals just not even trying to consult the people of whatever species for whom they're claiming to advocate. Absolutely agree. I just want to say that, you know, that is the reason why sanctuaries are so important is because the folks who are in sanctuary are able to have that close relationship with our beyond human relatives and receive that information and that feedback and center the ones who are most impacted. And, you know, not just tokenize our beyond human relatives. So I'm going to take a picture because, you know, this is a cute cow, but really understand, you know, how this cow is definitely engaging. And I, I think when I think of this, I even think of language justice. You know, as a person who speaks multiple languages, what I have experienced and how, you know, in the oppression that our beyond human relatives experience, not only are they experiencing that body, body oppression, right, where they're uh, tortured or, you know, they're held against their will, but also how we dismiss their language, you know, and how there is still a huge aspect of language justice that needs to happen and that we need to be open to in order to really fight for their liberation. Wow, everything you're saying is giving me like five ideas at once or, or, or five things I want to say in response. With regard to language oppression, I'm thinking, of course, the suppression of language played, you know, such a strong role in, in colonialism and continues to do so. Uh, but also in ableism, the denigration of sign language and of other other forms of human language plays a big role. And then and then we see it in the way that you've just described, the ignoring of animal communications, which in many cases are so sophisticated and are treated as though they were nonsensical. But I'm then I'm also thinking of um, what you said about people thinking that they have the. Oh, I forget the word you used. It was something like the, the formula for liberation and how that way of thinking also reflects colonialism. And, and just as, I, as you started to talk about sanctuaries and the importance of sanctuaries, I was thinking about how the people who say they have that formula are going around saying that sanctuaries are worthless because sanctuaries aren't part of that formula, that, that sanctuaries are wasting, uh, wasting funds by actually caring for rescued animals. 
when the thing that we need to do is devote all of our resources to preventing future animals from being born. So, I don't know. I just have to, had to offload all of that that was happening in my God, no, that, talking, that's but... great. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, still thinking about sanctuary and how, you know, many people around the world have had to create sanctuary in response to oppression. So sanctuaries are a response to the oppression mm-hmm. that our beyond human relatives are experiencing and to dismiss them as not part of liberation is really just ignorant, to be quite honest. The reason why so many of us who have had to fight for liberation and our ancestors thrived is because they were able to create sanctuaries. And in those sanctuaries, they found those spaces where they could thrive and engage in ways that led to further their liberatory work and liberatory practice. And so they are an extremely important part of of what we're trying to do. And I firmly believe that, I firmly believe that, you know, if we, if we didn't have oppression, we wouldn't need sanctuary. So how can we cast them aside as something that's not important or, or a process or framework that's not important? I love this. And it makes me think of two things. One, that at least in English, the derivation of the term sanctuary yeah is a place of refuge from the war where you can be safe to strategize what to do next. And for folks who are interested in, in that way of thinking, Timothy Potchkriot has a chapter in the book Critical Terms for Animal Studies that's just entitled Sanctuary. And that looks at the whole question of sanctuary from that perspective as the as the refuge from the war from which it is possible to to launch liberation tactics. But then I was also thinking that at our recent event, Rainbow Palooza, which was a combined pride and veg fest that both Chili's on Wheels and the Vegan Activist Alliance supported. Thank you so much. We had a speaker from the National LGBT Hotline. And he was talking about the hotlines themselves being sanctuaries, being a kind of sanctuary, a place that even if you're in a hostile place, you can call the hotline and be in a a safe space. So that was fitting just with what you were saying about about sanctuary. But let me let me since since the Palooza brought me to remembering that Chili's on Wheels and the Vegan Activist Alliance have helped us with those. Can can we shift over to talking about them? Yeah, absolutely. I think that'd be great. And and you know, just to add to what you said, I think that it's important for us to remember that we can strive to create sanctuary wherever we are. Sometimes. It may look like having a space where you have so many of our beyond human relatives, or it may look like, you know, your bedroom where you rescue a chicken (laughs) and they live with you for a while. And so I think it's important to remember that we have the power to create sanctuary. Absolutely. It can just even be a little spot of land that you don't mow 
And so there are some dandelions and native plants for the pollinators to visit in the midst of, of places that are hostile to them. Thank you. That's such an important thing to say. So you are now the director, I think, of Chili's on Wheels? Yes, yes, yes. I, I took over after Michelle stepped down obviously just did such amazing work and and really shifted so much within the vegan and animal liberation movement. And uh, at Chili Sun Wheels, you know, we had always done just food relief. And one of the things to me that was really important is to work on systemic change while we, you know, did take care of our communities and, and came up with those alternate systems of survival. And so now we do policy, we also do mentorship as well as education, and we have really expanded even to having a youth program that focuses on food policy and environmental policy. They just went to D.C. and really they're pushing for food justice, for food sovereignty, and for us to really end all this factory farming that's going on that's harming people and our beyond human relatives so really excited about all the all the new things at chili stone wheels and everything that we're accomplishing i'm so inspired by the persistence and continual evolution of chilies on wheels and I, i'm 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 especially excited about this youth advisory is it youth advisory committee? Uh, youth steering committee and youth steering um, committee. Yeah, yes. I'm so excited about that to see what they've been doing so far, and like we can't even imagine what they're going to do next. They're just doing such incredible work. It's a majority Black, Indigenous, and people of the global majority led. They're high school and college students, and when I tell you, these youths are just so inspiring and doing so much and really want to see so much change. One of the things that Michelle did when she started Chili Sun Wheels is that she engaged youth in writing to political prisoners. And so I always thought that it was important to bring in youth in various ways and create opportunities for folks who may not otherwise have the opportunity to work on systems change and policy. And so right now in our 2023 cohort, we have students who have experienced food insecurity to students who, you know, have religious reasons for not eating animals. I mean, it's such a diverse group of students and that's exactly what we want because we want to represent everyone um, who wants to take a stance against, you know, these exploitative uh, industries. And where should people go online if they want to hear more, if they want to learn more about Chili's on Wheels? So they can go to chilisonwheels.org and they'll find our information there. And it's Chili's on Wheels across all of our social media as well. Wonderful. And now you also are part or, or, or I think founded uh, this vegan activist alliance. So please, please, why is that? How is that? What is that? So, you know, I founded, co-founded Vegan Activist Alliance. At that time, I didn't realize uh, that I was also going to be running Chili Sun Wheels. So it's been an interesting few years. And Vegan Activist Alliance was really the response to what was going on in the movement. 
I don't have time to convince everyone uh, to understand how we're all interconnected and that we need to create spaces for people to flourish in their activism. And so I was pretty fed up and pretty angry about the sexism and ableism and anti-trans sentiments that existed within our movement and how folks who were not even part of our local community were influencing the decisions that were being made and how activists were being influenced. And so the response to that was like, well, back to sanctuary, we're just going to create a space where that exists because the energy that it takes to convince folks who are harmful and who are not using their privilege for good is too much, right? And it's exhausting. And so I don't want to be continuously exhausted and lose my focus because some other folks can't get with it, right? I have better things to do. And so we decided that we were going to start this organization. And I decided that the organization was going to very much center anti-colonial framework and decolonizing and decoloniality. And that we were going to be pretty open about what we stood up for, regardless of what people said. In the beginning, we definitely faced quite a bit of pushback because we were talking about all of the interconnected issues and the issues within our movement. And we took that decolonial framework and said, you know, this is not just a word, this is an action. We can continue talking about liberation and not understanding what liberation is, right? If you don't want liberation for everybody, then you're not a liberation activist. And that's pretty much how we shaped Vegan Activist Alliance, and we work on policy. We also do a lot of grassroots work, and we empower activists to find their way to be active. I think that there's a lot of misconception that the only way to do activism in our movement is one way or is to do outreach or, you know, and that disempowers people. And because of that disempowerment, a lot of people were leaving because they felt they couldn't contribute. And I'm a firm believer that everybody has, you know, a role in the fight for liberation. And we want to make sure that people can see themselves as part of that liberatory work. And so, yeah, that's what we do. Vegan Activist Alliance and uh, we center, you know, Afro-descendant and indigenous knowledge because we believe that we're not going to get where we need to get to by dismissing the folks that are protecting most of our biodiversity. And we have seen a lot of anti-indigeneity in, in the vegan movement, as well as anti-Blackness. And yeah, I was just fed up with that. And uh, we're going, we're going strong. And, uh, you know, sometimes you have to you have to be comfortable standing on your own because people will come, you know, and, and that's what we did. And we, we did it regardless. I lost some friends because of it. And I was fine with that. I was like, it's okay. <laughs> wow. Well, I love it that you saw the need and created the space, which, as you say, is a very sanctuary thing to do. Refuge is needed. You create the refuge, and the refuge enables further work. That's that's just beautiful. Except for the part about the friends. Maybe they they weren't true friends. Sometimes you know you're you're meant to be together for a while. You learn from each other, and then you move on and you evolve, and and that's life, right? Yeah. So I hear you. I, I I've heard you say 
I've heard you say beyond human a lot of times, which is a phrase that I like. I tend to alternate between larger than human, more than human, but I love beyond human. That's really nice as well. And I wonder if you've ever gotten, I don't know, pushback against that term. Yeah, it's really interesting because even within this movement, I think language is such an important part of social justice and such an important part of the work that we do. And so I am that person that, you know, is challenging my own speciesism, right? We are born into this world and all around us, our beyond human relatives are being exploited. And so I have gotten pushback from non-vegans, but from vegans, I've had people get into arguments with me via email. I mean, I'm not arguing, but they're, they're arguing when they start expressing themselves and telling me that, you know, this is not good for the movement because people don't recognize this term and we want people to recognize the terms and that, you know, this doesn't make sense. And so I have gotten pushback for it. I've also gotten, you know, quite a lot of support for it. And so, you know, the, the things I tell the folks that, you know, have quite a lot to say about, especially the vegans, I was like, you're part of this movement too. You can challenge language in whatever way you want, and I'm going to challenge it in the way that I want. And so the reason for me really talking about animals in, in the way of beyond human, I, I never wanted to say they're non-something, right? Like as a woman and as an Afro-Indigenous woman, I don't use the term non-white because it centers whiteness. And so I don't want to use that and do that to animals either. And I love the term more than human as well. And so for me, beyond human, it was some, you know, it, it was something that stuck in my mind because they are beyond something um, that we can completely understand. I think we're still so challenged and we can learn so much but they're beyond what we're currently understanding and they're beyond what we define them to be. You know, they're beyond what we see, you know, and beyond our perception. Their lives exist beyond how we define them. And that's really why that term stuck with me. Yeah, I love it very much. And, and I agree with you that, that, you know, language, the kind of animal we are, the kind of primate we are, is is and we think our our language patterns our thought it's very very difficult once you've once you're once you've grown into language to to think outside of the categories imposed by language and that's why it's so important as you say to challenge language and 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 nobody knows what is the right way to do that. Uh, so, and I personally love it when language is challenged in a way that makes people think differently, like have to actually stop in the middle of your sentence and ask, well, wait, what did, what did they mean by that, by beyond human? Like that point of breaking into the sentence and having them think, well, what is that? And maybe giving you the opportunity to explain beyond. All of that is, is amazing on point and the other piece of it it's just so interesting that you get the pushback from vegans 
And part of it is back to that whole people think there's some kind of formula. Right. Um, yes. And they know what the formula is. And the formula involves the word vegan or it doesn't involve the word vegan or right. it involves the phrase plant-based or it doesn't involve the phrase plant-based or whatever the case might be. But I also think it's also because just deciding to be vegan or just deciding that you're going to support animal liberation, that doesn't like immediately divest you of your speciesism. I know because I've been trying, you know, I'm here at an animal sanctuary where there for, for the past 20 years where I've been mindfully trying to divest myself of my speciesism and I'm still catching myself at it. And I've got all kind of pushback all around me. So the idea that you could just magically divest yourself of your speciesism is folly. And I think possibly speciesism is sort of playing a role in that pushback against talking about beyond human because it does it stops centering the human. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. And, you know, you know, same here. I'm always trying to learn new ways of how to combat that speciesism that we're born into. And to think that by going vegan, we get rid of that automatically, it's just, it's just untrue. And it's important for us to remember that we are born in this world that normalizes all of this violence and that tells us every day that, you know, our beyond human relatives are here to be exploited in each way possible. And understanding that I think also keeps us humble, you know, while being vegan, if I understand that I still hold some of these speciesist thoughts because I'm, I'm living and existing in a world that speciesist then we can work with others who are in different parts of their journey. And I think that staying humble and remembering how you yourself are part of that same system and have been, and that we're all a work in progress, right? We haven't magically liberated all the animals on this planet, not even the human animals. I think it's an important part of liberation practice as well. That humility and to maintain that humility and to stay open to learning. Because once we stop learning or being open to learning, then I think we stop being activists, in my opinion. How can you be an activist and I figured it out? Why have you figured it out if we're not all free? Wow. Okay, so we're out of time here. I'm about to ask you if you have any parting thoughts, but what I'm gonna tell our listeners, if, if you've been listening through all this, I want you to go back and listen again. Because Eloisa has said so many things that are so rich that you probably missed something. And it's probably worth listening a second time to this. I have been speaking with Eloisa Trinidad from Chili's on Wheels and the Vegan Activist Alliance. You can find out about Chili's on Wheels at chilisonwheels.org. And you can find out about the Vegan Activist Alliance where veganactivistalliance.org and same across all of our social media, Vegan Activist Alliance. Eloisa, thank you so much for making time to have such a rich and generative conversation with me today. Do you have any parting thoughts for our listeners? Uh, no, just thank you, Patrice. I'm still so in awe of you and just so grateful to be here for you to give me the space to have this conversation with you. And I guess the parting thoughts are... We all have a part in this fight. 
And let's make sure that we share with others, including the plant-based food that we so love and like, and that we encourage and support others to be the most amazing activists that they can be. Thank you so much. Those are my parting words as well. Thank you for listening to In Context from Vine Sanctuary. You can go to the On In Context page on the Vine Sanctuary website to listen to other episodes. Thank you again to Eloisa Trinidad and to you for listening and for thinking about what your role is going to be in the struggle for collective liberation. See you next time.